Hey all, welcome to another edition of Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee, I'm the head of Veritas Catholic Network, and I am pleased to be here with Bishop Frank Caggiano. We are- it's Great to be with you. Excellency, it's great to be with you too. Although we're not together, it's, uh, it's great to have another conversation with you. As a matter of fact, you know, I was talking to somebody this weekend, Excellency, and they said that um, they really, really appreciate hearing from you on a weekly basis. They feel like not only are they learning a lot and their faith is strengthened from what you're teaching, but they also feel like they're getting to know you, which is really, I think, such, such a great thing. Well, you know what, Steve? I'm grateful to you and to Veritas uh, Radio for allowing this to happen. The truth of the matter is, None of us could ever have imagined what would be transpiring in the world. And the fact that we have begun to do this at the very time that people find themselves separated from their parishes and from the common worship that is that part of who we are is a great gift that um, I will always be grateful for. And I like to tell stories. I do. I, and, and to the extent that people get to know me, um, they could then pray for me, which is great. <laughs> right. I need those prayers. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're here in, uh, in Holy Week, and we are on the precipice of the Triduum. So we're going to talk today about Good Friday and Easter, and as always, we'll finish by answering some listener questions. I, before we get into all of that, our show is brought to you by the Knights of Columbus Museum. And although you can't tour the museum during this time of health caution, you can certainly visit on the web. And this week is a beautiful time to take your family online to take a journey together through history, art, and faith. Visit kofcmuseum.org. So, Excellency, we've been doing these shows sitting across from each other. And because of social distancing now, we're doing it um, not sitting across from each other in separate locations. And... Uh, it's been a Lent unlike any that, you know, we've ever seen or experienced in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been reflecting on that um, often. And one of the questions I keep asking myself is, um, why has the Lord allowed us to be in this place? And of course, there is no clear answer as to why. But the Lord will always draw good out of every situation, even the darkest, even the most challenged. And when we consider Holy Week, we consider the Paschal Mystery that we begin to celebrate on Holy Thursday evening through Easter Sunday. We sometimes forget that in Jesus's ministry, as the crowds began to turn away from him, and even the exultant crowd that welcomed him into Jerusalem quickly turned away from him, that in fact Jesus was walking towards Jerusalem ever more isolated, ever more alone. And as we know, in the Triduum itself, the apostles, even Peter, ran after Judas betrayed him. So we are sharing with the Lord that 
if I may say it, that being alone, that isolation, that many a Holy Week before, precisely because it's such a special time and we have all of these communal celebrations and it's very busy. And for many priests, particularly, it is a almost a frenetic time. This year is different. And at least from my point of view, I have come to understand and sympathize and empathize much more with that aloneness that Jesus was experiencing that came to the culmination at Calvary, where there were just a few. John, his mother, Mary Magdala, Mary, just a few who were left. Everyone else had left. Yeah. And that communion with Jesus in this aloneness is the communion Jesus had with the Father. Eli, Eli, Lamach Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That psalm is not a sign of desperation. It's a psalm that ends in an in a, uh, affirmation of confidence in God's love, even though the times are challenged. Even for Jesus, there was of the extreme. Nonetheless, it was not abandonment as we understand it, but it was a moment of total surrender. So I guess the question for you, for me, for our listeners is, are we going to allow these days now to be an opportunity where even though we may be isolated or alone or quarantined or whatever it may be, to surrender ourselves to the Lord completely, just run into his arms and surrender and leave everyone and everything else behind. It's a unique opportunity this year to do that. Right. And it's so much more pronounced in our day-to-day lives. And even if you haven't done a good job of doing it up until now through Lent, it's never too late, is it? Oh, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. And in fact, all of Lent is a preparation for the Easter Trinity. It is all that we do with almsgiving and fasting and prayer is to prepare our path to encounter the crucified and risen Lord. So it is never too late. In fact, this is the culmination. Yes. Yeah. Uh, starting in two days in, in, on Good Friday, you know, as I was, as I was thinking about uh, this show, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I remembered two years ago, Excellency, my son had a friend come over to our house. The friend uh, mm-hmm. was through the town, not through the Catholic school. And I remember this boy, he walks into the front door of our house for the first time and he sees the crucifix on the wall and he walked right up to the crucifix and stared silently for 15 or 20 seconds. And then he turned to, to my son and said, who is that? I, and it sticks with me because I couldn't believe that an 11 year old boy had never seen a crucifix before. Oh, is that right? So, you know, my son looked at me and was like, how do I answer that? And I said, just tell him, tell him who that is and mm-hmm. what he's doing there. But, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. so we have, I, go ahead. No, I was just going to share a story. I had something similar happen to me when I went to Alaska of all places to Anchorage for a youth event, because, you know, being somewhat foolish in my own thinking, uh, I was asked by the Archbishop of Anchorage to come and visit because I was on my way to California. And, you know, typical 
oh yeah, that's kind of in the same direction. <laughs> <laughs> not quite, not quite. <laughs> and I, there were about 180 young people and one young boy came up to me and asked a similar question, but not of a crucifix, but a set of rosary, which I had blessed for the young man before him online. Hmm. And he asked, what, what are those? And I said, they're rosary beads. And he had never, had never seen them. Yeah, it's amazing. the beautiful thing is the little boy offered to explain it to him. Oh, wow. Together. Oh, goodness. That's a moment of evangelization. Huh? Yes, yes. You, mm-hmm. people, are, people are always watching and they're always, you never, mm-hmm. I mean, you and I, we don't expect it because we're kind of immersed in the Catholic world. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm-hmm. so then maybe we, as we look at Good Friday, maybe we should start at the beginning mm-hmm. then and tell us mm-hmm. why Good Friday was necessary. Why did Jesus have to die for our sins? Well, um, the fathers of the church have often, they have many different responses to that question. And they all fit a piece of a puzzle. Certainly there is atonement that was needed for the sin of Adam and Eve and all the sins since. And even the sins you and I continue to commit. There is a need for an atonement for those past transgressions. But also, quite frankly, um, there is also the desire is that that of, on the part of God to use that which was the consequence of sin to be the actual means by which sin would be conquered. So death is a consequence of sin and death became the vehicle that allowed us to be set free. So it's almost reversing everything that has happened from the fall, from the inside out. But there's another piece to this puzzle, too, and that is that um, love is of the very life of God. And love, as you and I have shared in previous occasions, that love is not simply an emotion, although it generates emotion. But love is a choice, and we've said that. So it is love, ultimately, that conquers sin and death. And therefore, Good Friday is the perfect, eternal, enduring act of love. It is Christ willing our good by offering his life on the cross so that death could be put to death in his death. And sin could be conquered in his death so we might be set free. So it is the perfect mirror of what love is. It almost sounds ironic. But in fact, the world used every means at its disposal, including capital punishment. But Jesus was, in fact, a victim of capital punishment administered by the Roman state. And yet... He freely accepted it. He was not victimized in the sense that you and I are victimized by authority because he is the ultimate authority. 
and could have stopped it at any time he chose. As he says in St. Matthew's Gospel, he could have called 12 legions of angels simply to start. But he chose not to. He willed not to, because it is his eternal, perfect, divine act of love for us. And that is why the cross, the crucifix, is at the center of our faith. Consider for a minute. Don't you think it is ironic that we cross ourselves? We make the sign of the cross every time we pray. We are signing ourselves with the sign of death. How often do we forget that? That we domesticate the cross of Jesus Christ. We have it on our walls. We carry it on our, our, around our necks. It almost has in many cases become jewelry for many people. And yet, the early Christians understood its power. For they were subject to the penalty of death to be a Christian. They knew they were walking in their master's footsteps. And they understood that by doing that, they too would become disciples of love. It is love that sets us free. Paul says, love endures unto forever. So why did Jesus have to die? He chose to die so that he could atone for our sins in our place. That he could conquer sin and death literally from the inside out, particularly death. And ultimately, because it is the perfect act of love creation will ever see. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's, you know, and you say we, we wear a cross, we cross ourselves. We would never do that with, you know, a guillotine or a whip. Right. But it's because the cross has such meaning because of, as you say, Jesus' uh, willing sacrifice for us. It, we, we must never forget that the death of Jesus was not imposed upon him. He freely chose to accept it. Jesus could have walked away if he chose to, and there would be nothing on earth that would have stopped it. But he did not, because he willed to love us to the end. If there is no more beautiful testimony of how much God loves us, it is staring us at the face on Good Friday. And this is not the death of a humanitarian. This is not the death of a philosopher of life. This is not a death of a prophet. This is the death of God made man in his human life. It's interesting. You read the father's. They speak of Christ gave us the ability to live forever, and humanity gave to Jesus the ability to die in his human life. Hmm. Now that is something to think about. Yeah. And the extent to which God loves his creatures. It's it's just astounding to me. It's absolutely astounding. It's... uh, it's, it's scandalous. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it shouldn't, it doesn't and shouldn't make sense. And, and that's part of why it's so much more amazing. Yes. And it does. And yes. And also it should stop us in our tracks. And again, this Holy week, we do have the opportunity because we're not in the public sphere. 
We are, most of us, are in our homes. And we are, we have plenty of time. We can now ask the question. It doesn't make sense by the human worldly standards. But why do we accept the worldly human standards as the standard by which we judge our lives? Yeah. That's really at the heart of where many Christians have accommodated to the modern world or to ordinary life or society standards and find themselves in crisis or lukewarm in faith. In the end, the world says this should not be. The world says that um, the just in the end perhaps should not be treated this way. And on a level of justice, one could argue, yeah, of course not. The world should have. If it had opened its eyes, it would have accepted Jesus and his message. But the truth of the matter is, it didn't, in part because it did not want to challenge its presumptions, its assumptions, the way it operates. Power oftentimes doesn't want to do that. So from the inside out, there is a true divine revolution on Good Friday. That despite our stubbornness and sinfulness, true power is revealed, right? Yes. True love is yes. revealed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For those who see it. Right. Mm-hmm. Bishop Frank, mm-hmm. you, were, you were there in the Holy Land visiting, and I'm sure, you know, I imagine you've... You, walk through Gethsemane, the high priest's house, the mm-hmm. praetorium, Calvary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For those of us who have not visited and who haven't seen it with our eyes, can you please paint a picture for us, you know, walk us through it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is a life-changing experience. And I know there are some who perhaps could never go. But even in this day and age, if a person cannot go physically, there's many a virtual way to at least be able to glimpse these holy places. The Holy Land is called the fifth gospel for a reason. It is called the fifth gospel in part because once you visit, the four gospels take a life that is completely new for all the reasons you just indicated. But when someone goes to the, uh, to the um, Basilica of, of the Holy Sepulchre, it is the site of both the death and resurrection of Jesus. For in the time of Jesus, the disposal of the bodies crucified would have been done relatively quickly, and they needed to be done in such a way that, that minimized as much ritual impurity as possible. So when you enter in to the Basilica of the Holy Sepulchre, you're confronted with a slab of, of stone. So it's a large uh, slab stone that is the place where Jesus's body was prepared before it was placed into the tomb. And if my memory serves me correctly, to enter and turn right brought you up a set of stairs that literally allows you to climb Mount Calvary 
And I distinctly remember as I was walking up, I was taken aback by a huge gaping crack that exists in the stone of Calvary itself, which echoes the scriptural testimony of the stones themselves being split open right. and the earth quaking on the death of Jesus. And when you come up to the top, which is the top of the mount, that is the place in which the wood of the cross was affixed to its earth. And that's the place where Jesus freely gave his life for the salvation of all creation, of all humanity. And I was flabbergasted when I went up, as I was, unfortunately, in many of the sites in the Holy Land, where a large number of people saw this more as a tourist attraction than as a place of deep, reverent prayer, silence, and adoration. It so took me aback that I found my way in the corner of that, I call it like loggia, just to recollect and pray. Hmm. Because in the secularized world in which we live, there's many a person on a tour who has precious little understanding of where they really are. Right. But when the crowd thinned, I was able to go and make my reverence to the spot revered which where the cross was, was, was literally driven into the ground, into the top of the mount. Hmm. And then when you climb down the other side, towards the other side of the basilica is the empty tomb of Jesus, hmm. the place where Jesus rose. And allow me to tell you a story, if I may. Yes. The very first time I went to the Holy Land, I went with a group of priests from my former diocese. And as you could well imagine, lots of groups want to celebrate Mass. And in fact, you can above the empty tomb. But it is such a small, confined place that at the most, three people alone can fit at any one time. And then there's an antechamber where others can gather. So, Mass is scheduled on the half hour. And we were one of the first to go in. If, if I remember correctly, it was at 5.30 that we had Mass. So I, of course, as a bishop, had the great privilege to celebrate the Mass, and I took the youngest and oldest priest who was on pilgrimage with me in the inner chamber, and then the rest were outside in the antechamber. And by some great grace, the group after us had canceled, which is remarkable. Oh. So we had more than a half an hour. Wow which allowed every priest the ability to enter into the inner room and reverence the tomb of Jesus, the empty tomb of Jesus. And if you could picture it in your mind's eye, there is the tomb, and then there is a slab of stone, and there is a small space between them. And I was the first to reverence, and this is the point of the story. When Mass had been, was finished, and I was knelt down 
to kiss the rim. It was remarkable, for I was overcome with an overwhelming smell of roses as I kissed the very edge of the tomb. It startled me. It was so profound. But we speak of the odor of sanctity. We speak of the odor that comes among those in our midst who truly are holy. Well, it startled me that in that sacred space where the, the dead human body of Jesus was laid to rest and from which he rose from the dead, there is this smell, sweet, fragrant, beautiful smell of roses as a sign of hope, it certainly was for me and for all humanity that the story does not end on the top of the mount, but it ends in the emptiness of the tomb. Yes. That's the victory of love. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we go to a break in a couple minutes, I, I want to ask you um, about Mary. And mm-hmm. uh, in the, I keep bringing up the movie, The Passion of the Christ, but that movie... Mm-hmm. It was so movingly portrayed the relationship between Jesus and Mary. You know, there's that memorable scene where he falls while he's carrying the cross and she runs to him. And even the flashback to when they're in the house and he's building the table. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically now of the scene when he's chained in the cistern and she's walking on the ground above him and they can sense Mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. what, What should we take away? What can we learn from her, um, reaction or, or the way she uh, was there, you know, during the passion? Well, first of all, they are two beautiful moments. Are they not portrayed in that film? Amazing. And you alluded to when our Lord fell and our lady came to him and you recall what he said. It's part of those private revelations that yes. were included in the movie. And he said, see, He's lifting up the cross, looks into the eyes of his mother and says, see, I make all things new. That's the testimony of the why Jesus offered himself freely on the cross. To make you and me new, eternal, to be like him in glory. But the real challenge Our Lady presents to us is that she had an intuition that came from the love she had for her son, a love of a mother for a son, but a love that was pure and deep and abiding. Because I'm going to put you on the spot just for a second, Steve. Yes. But when you and your wife have private moments together, is it fair to say that there are times you know what she's thinking and she knows what you're thinking, even without uttering a word? Yes, of course. She knows more often what I'm thinking than I know what she's thinking. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. but yes. There you go. And there's intuition. That's intu- that, that, it's a form of knowledge that goes beyond conceptual knowledge. It's a, a form of knowledge that's deep and basic that is almost a predisposition, the disposition of a person towards another. 
you begin to think the way they think. You begin to feel what they feel. You begin to actually share a communion of life that goes beyond the ability of the mind to fully express. See, that great intuition, I call it intuition, that, that great joining of spirits is what Mary demonstrated in that beautiful scene in the Praetorium where she just literally put her face against the stone pavement right? because below was her son, although she did not know that, she did not know that conceptually. She couldn't see it, mm-hmm. but she knew it. She mm-hmm. knew it. Okay, so now, two things from that. Imagine the pain then that she endured. Imagine as her son was agonizing, having been brutally beaten and bruised and perhaps even broken in ribs and, and to see him in his, in his last three hours of life on the cross. Imagine the pain she felt because of that communion of life. She was not a bystander in that sense. It's remarkable. It's remarkable that she remained faithful, silent. And in what Michelangelo depicts beautifully in the Pietà, she received the dead body of her son into her own arms and did not cry out did not turn her back. Yeah. She remained silent. Imagine what she was enduring. So, the second half of that challenge is this. Not only did Mary have that intuition, but she too shows us that we too can love the way Jesus loved. For she is not God. She is not divine. She is just like us. Free from being conceived with original sin, but nonetheless, a human being like you and me. And she also chose to trust in her hour of great pain. As a challenge to us that we also can do the same thing. Remarkable. Yes. Amazing. It is remarkable. And Amazing. so I would, I would like to suggest, Steve, that the passion, the story of the passion, is not complete unless we also reflect on the example that Our Lady provides in the same drama in which we're saved. Yeah. Amen. Okay. So... This Easter Sunday is going to be a different type of Easter Sunday for all of us, just like this Lent has been. We're going to talk Mm -hmm. more about that when we come back from the break. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. 
Hey all, we are back on Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Bishop Frank, uh, Easter is really the most, the single most important day of the year. Uh, and what I would like to know, or I'd like to hear, and I know our listeners would like to hear about Easter in your home as you were growing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. Growing up in, in my home, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday were two sides of one reality. Insofar as, believe it or not, the largest celebration when it came to meals and relatives and was Palm Sunday, not Easter Sunday. And I've said that to many people, and they're kind of looking at me saying, but, 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 but Palm Sunday is just like the preview. It's really <laughs> Easter that is. Yes, and of course it is, so no, without a doubt. And of course, when it comes to religion and the observance of our faith, Easter certainly was the great, greatest uh, occasion for us as a family. But when it came to the social aspect, it was Palm Sunday. And I think part of it was, if I could be brutally honest, part of it was is because there were some of my relatives and others who only came out on Palm Sunday because they got palms, <laughs> which was part of it. <laughs> were engaged, that gnashes, but I mean, that's a whole other right. program. We could talk about that. <laughs> um, but Easter, uh, we did not have a tradition of going to the Easter Vigil when I was a, a young boy. Mm. I only really entered into that when I went to the seminary. Mm. Okay. Um, it was Easter Sunday morning where I remember where we were dressed up and we would go to church and we would have to leave a half hour early because there were people all over. One, I will never forget one Easter where I was literally sitting in the aisles of church because there was not a place to stand in that church, out the door, down the wow. steps, on the sidewalk. Yeah, um, it, it was this sense, it would just mystified me the very fact that it was such a grand celebratory event, even as a little, little boy, I knew there was something very special going on here and the lilies and the flowers and the candles and the Easter candle. It was just, so growing up, it was really Easter day for religion. And then we would come and have our meal and it was always a great meal, but Palm Sunday was, a, a similar, same crowds, palms come home, make the crosses out of the palms, which their mom would bring to the cemetery where she was able to go and just have a huge celebration. Um, so that was what Easter was like. We also did not have a tradition of uh, coloring Easter eggs and things of that nature. Um, the eggs we had for Easter were in the bread that my mother baked. Hmm hard-boiled eggs at the very top of the bread. There was Easter bread that was basically roundish. And it, it almost looks like um, the bread that you would find in a Jewish deli. Huh. And it was sweet. And then she would pour melted sugar on top of it. So it was delicious. Oh my gosh, it was delicious. <laughs> and then she'd make pizzas with ragotta and grain and a a few liquors here and there. It was delicious. Wow. <laughs> I loved Easter. 
<laughs> have uh, any of these foods or traditions that you've been able to, you know, keep going through your priesthood and your episcopacy? Uh, well, sadly, no. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, from my perspective, uh, to, it, the, the baking is a big job. Right. I remember. <laughs> I remember my mother would have us cut the sausage um, on uh, Holy Thursday and sometimes even Good Friday, but we were not allowed to touch it, of course, <laughs> for, for the other type of pizza she would make, which was a rigotta, and it was all of this sausage, and it was a, a denser sort of cake uh, that also was delicious. Hmm. Uh, but I don't have the time to do And quite frankly, after all of these years, I'm not even sure I would know what to do at this point. It's part of the sadness of losing some of those traditions over time. Yeah. Well, maybe this is an opportunity for any listeners who are good at baking and who enjoy it to maybe next Easter drop something off for you. Oh, Ava, Steve, you said it. I didn't. But <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, I, I want a couple slices. That's all. <laughs> so, so let's, uh, getting to Easter itself and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So Paul writes in mm-hmm. Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And Flannery O'Connor ha- always has a great way of putting things. And so when a good man is hard to find, she has a character towards the end say, if Jesus did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do, but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, mm-hmm. then it's nothing for you to do, but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. So the right. resurrection, mm-hmm. the resurrection is the key to our faith, right? Bishop Frank. So, mm-hmm. you know, how can we have confidence that it happened? <laughs> that it happened. Yes. Okay. Well, let's take this from a couple of angles. First, it's written in the grammar of nature itself. That in every spring, as life reblossoms, there is a comfort, but there's also an expectation that death does not remain forever. What appears to be death does not remain forever. So, too, The great irony of contemporary philosophy, perhaps modern and contemporary philosophy, that speaks of nihilism and that there is no ultimate meaning and there is no God and it's very atheistic. It itself is a contradiction because Camus and Sartre and all of these great philosophers who claim that there could be no enduring value or enduring life, and there is no God, yet they still got up in the morning, got out of bed, wrote their books, and sold them. For what purpose? If you really don't believe there's any meaning, stay in bed, put your sheets over your head, and wait to die. (laughs) But they didn't do that. Why? Because it's in the very grammar of human life. Right. It is in the very grammar of who we are. There is an intuition that there is more than meets the eye and that there is a value that's worth living for and dying for, that there is in the end life more than what we can see here. And let's, let's look to the crisis we're living in. Think of all those people on the front lines 
this very day in hospitals in Connecticut, in New York, in New Jersey, just at the front lines of this horrible pandemic. They're risking their lives to save other people's lives. If you follow the logic of the world, you say, so why in the name of goodness would you do that for? Right. Your life comes first. No, but they're there because whether they realize it or not, they are the messengers of the victory of love over sickness, even over death. So in the end, how do we know it to be the fact? Because the truth of the matter is, everything in our life, everything in the world around us, reminds us that death does not have the final say. So what we believe fits the very experience we have. Where faith comes in, Steve, my friend, is this. How could a single historic act in one small part, one small corner of one small part of the world have an eternal significance? And that is where faith comes. Because if you do not believe who Jesus said he was, then he's the death of a mistaken hero. He would be the death of a delusional prophet. Mm-hmm. He would be the death of a nice guy went wrong. Right. But he's not that if one has faith. But that, once one has faith, that this Savior could conquer death within death itself, we see it all around us, that life conquers death. And I think that's... Uh... That's probably also there's you you talk about this uh, innate understanding of this, um, even among Mm -hmm. people who don't believe. That's probably one of the reasons why Easter mass is so jam packed, right? With people who kind of don't really practice the faith throughout the year, but they come back on Easter Sunday. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, yes. And I think, um, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, My father, long time ago we were talking about this and uh, we were having pasta one Sunday. I was, I was bemoaning, I was in the seminaries bemoaning the fact that people don't come in the same numbers every Sunday. And my father woke up and said, do you want all your relatives at dinner every Sunday? <laughs> I looked at him. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, I understand this point. His point is, you know, they could be here, yeah, but they're not. You invite them, but when they are here, welcome them. Yes. Give them a reason to come back, right? Yes, definitely. So, yeah. So, so they come, yeah, but I think you're right. There's an intuition. There's something greater than meets the eye. Yeah. See, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so then uh, you bring up our response to this. So, you know, mm-hmm. we are an Easter people and Alleluia is our song. Um, mm-hmm. That, how, how should we change our lives, um, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that we have a God who loves us so much? Well, I would say this. It's interesting you quoted that because I'm not a big fan of Alleluia is our song and we're an Easter people. And I'll tell you why. Because I call that 
the possibility of falling into cheap glory. Cheap glory. Okay. Cheap glory is getting to the empty tomb and bypassing Calvary. Hmm. Wanting the, the, the result, but not the commitment and sacrifice it takes to get the authentic result. So it is true we are an Easter people, but as long as people realize, myself included, that you don't get to Sunday without Friday and Saturday, particularly Saturday. See, Saturday, Holy Saturday, is almost a forgotten day. And yet Holy Saturday has profound, profound spiritual significance. Because allow me to contextualize it this way. How many times have you and I been in a situation where we have already seen the pain, suffering, and death, and not yet fully seen the glory of the empty tomb? Mm -hmm. That's Holy Saturday. That's the parable of human life, in my judgment. And therefore, Holy Saturday holds the two together so that you don't lose one or the other. So now in this coronavirus pandemic, we are basically living weeks and weeks of Holy Saturday. Right. We have seen the suffering, we see it. And we know there is a resurrection and we don't totally see it. So we wait in fidelity with Christ because we know Easter will come, it will come. That is God's will, it will come. And we wait until we can see it. And then we will have the joy of being an Easter people and singing the Alleluia. Yes, yeah. You know who fascinates me in this time? Particularly given the unique circumstances we have is Mary Magdala. Okay. Mary Magdala who, you know, in the tradition, she's called the Apostle to the Apostles because she was the one who brought the message that the person she thought was the gardener was actually the risen Lord. Right. Don't you think it's fascinating that in the Gospel it says they all departed and she remained? What was she waiting for? Yeah. What was she waiting for? She too had an intuition that this could not be the end. But she was alone. So that's why she, above all others, this Easter, this Holy Week, is going to play center stage in my own spiritual meditations and reflection. Mm. For she can be our companion at the empty tomb, waiting for the tomb to be empty waiting for the gardener to surprise us, waiting for the good news of the Lord Jesus to come when we least expect it. But she was alone waiting, as you and I probably, in our own way, are going to be alone either individually or with our families. We will be alone. She will be with us. Right. Encourage us to wait. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing. You know, and uh, the apostles spent Holy Saturday huddled together 
I guess, uh, mm -hmm. in that upper room. And mm -hmm. um, Sunday morning, Mary Magdala uh, runs out to the, to the tomb to, to check it out um, mm -hmm. and runs back. Mm -hmm. You know, I always, um, the story of, of the road to Emmaus Mm -hmm. And what, what always, one of the things that always sticks out to me is that the two guys who were walking on the road to Emmaus, they were disciples of Jesus. Mm -hmm. They followed him, they knew him, they listened to him. And mm -hmm. they probably were hiding out for two days. The very mm -hmm. day that he rises, they're taken off. They're going off someplace seven miles away. Right. <laughs> Fascinating story. Fascinating. Again, a parable for us. It is, by no mistake, the story that was used by the Synod of Bishops in youth, of which I had the great privilege to be part of, um, as, as the paradigm to which we're going to try to really recapture and reinvigorate ministry to young adults throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Because, Steve, consider for a second. Emmaus literally means nowhere. Huh. So, in fact, in the tradition, the symbolism is, right, the, 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 the inner truth is that they were leaving where their mission was, going literally nowhere. They had no idea where they were going. So lost were they. And Jesus appears, and they don't recognize him. And what does Jesus do? Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. He walks with them in the wrong direction. <laughs> right in the wrong direction, not forever, for a time, to accompany them, to help them, to care for them, to love them, to help them to see what they are blind to, that the risen Lord is literally in front of their face. <laughs> yeah. And then through word, scripture, the breaking of bread, which we have, yes. we have, they begin to see. And then he disappears because they have him in their hearts, their hearts are on fire, they're burning, they don't need to see him with their eyes, they see him with the intuition that I described before, they know he's alive in them. And then what do they do? Turn back to their mission. Right. Now, what I find remarkable about all of that, okay, is that in the end, our God loves us so much that he willingly lays his life down for us and even after that, loves us so much that he's patient with us that even when we're still literally blind, stubborn, off going our own merry way, he will walk with us, accompany us even for a short period of time in the wrong direction to get us back to him. It's, it's astonishing to me. Yeah. Another example, another example for us to follow as well, as you said, as you started out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before, before we go to the break, Your Excellency, I want to ask you about um, Thomas. And mm -hmm. how should we look at Thomas? Uh, Thomas is, anyways, a symbol, sign for all of us. Uh, Thomas is depicted as the apostle who had doubts. The truth of the matter is they all had doubts. 
until the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost and then truly converted them, gave them the grace to endure as disciples. But Thomas relied on his own abilities. He needed to see and to touch because he couldn't get out of his own way and allow God to take control and surprise him and empower him and lead him forth. So in many ways, we live in a time, and one maybe one program we could talk about, the relationship between reason and faith and how they are not enemies, they are complements. They are living companions, one with the other, to the fullness of the truth. Yes. But Thomas relied on his reason, his abilities, his senses. And when he finally encountered Christ, he is the first of the apostles. He's the first of the apostles to say, my Lord and my God. Yes. Right? But there's a lesson there. How many times do you and I and our listeners rely on our abilities, our our presumptions, our talents, our ability to reason, what we can figure out, what we can control. Wrong, 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 and wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying it's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Right. God first in all things. God in charge of all things, right? And then, then, so Thomas goes all the way to India. I mean, so inspired as a man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Okay. Let's, uh, let's take one more break, and then we'll come back and answer some listener questions. Thanks, Steve. A lot of people listen to Catholic Radio and get great information to help build their faith and support their faith. But there are also people out there who haven't yet built a relationship with God, and Catholic Radio reaches them wherever they are. It evangelizes in a way like no other medium, and that's just one of the many reasons why Catholic Radio is so important. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Your Excellency, a listener told me last week that they really, really enjoy this part of the show um, when they get to hear you answer questions. Um, And so uh, I'm sorry that I I only leave time for one question at the end because of my own lack of talking. That's the problem. (laughs) Not at all. It's it's all fantastic, obviously. But so let me let's get to this question for for this week. Um, we got a question that says, how can Jesus teach us about being hopeful, faithful, seeking spiritual guidance and healing, uh, during these troubling times that we are facing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. It certainly is. Certainly is uh, in a situation which is so challenging, so fearful, so anxiety producing, so dangerous. To so many people. And in a time when if you're in an isolation ward or you're on a ventilator or you're quarantined in your home alone and you say to yourself, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. So to speak of hope is quite a task. And yet, this is what reassures me. Jesus does not once in the Gospels ever utter the word hope. St. Paul does many times. 
but Jesus does not. Because Jesus doesn't speak of hope. Jesus is the hope. Hmm. In the end, hope is a theological virtue that God freely gives us to have confidence that God will keep his promises. And his promise is that if we are faithful, he will bring us to eternal life in heaven. And no matter what suffering we endure, if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, then our hope will never be extinguished. It can be challenged because we're frail, we're weak, we have our doubts, but it will not go out because he can be trusted. And why can he be trusted? Because he did what he promised. He loved us to the end. That we can see with our very eyes. Even the pagan Romans saw it with their own eyes. He will do what he promised. And therefore, our hope rests in him. Even in the darkest hour, it rests in him. Yes. Amen. So to all our listeners, uh, please keep sending your, your questions in for Bishop Frank. I will be more disciplined and, and allow for uh, more questions to be answered at the end of each episode. Um, you can send them in via social media or you can email them to questions at veritascatholic.com. So that does it for this week, Your Excellency. Uh, well, Steve, a blessed Triduum to you and a happy and a joyful, healthy Easter to you and to your family. Thank you. Thank you so much. And a quick thanks to our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum in New Haven. Listeners who are looking for some quality Catholic content on the web or social media, type KOFC Museum and give it a like or follow. Listen to it for our podcast out later. And Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, thanks again, Your Excellency. Can you please give us your blessing? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, as we celebrate the great mysteries of our salvation in your Son, Jesus, may this Easter be a time of reawakening of faith, of a reborn hope in our hearts, and a commitment that we may be the agents of love in the world to show the world that we believe in the victory that Christ had over sin and death. We ask that you bless us and our listeners and all your children this Easter, for we make our prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the Th name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Happy Easter, everyone. Happy Easter, Steve. I will see you. Thanks, Excellency. See you next week. Okay. God bless. God bless.